Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. Final series on the book of, actually, let me change the screen here. Our final series on the book of Philippians. It's going to be the last night, and then we're taking communion at the end. This is my my charge to you and my assignment to you tonight. Make this fun. Make these verse by verse. If you don't know, we're on a journey to preach every single verse of the New Testament on live stream. So we've done the whole book of Revelation, which was my favorite, in my opinion. We've done the entire book of Acts. We've done the entire book of Romans. We've done the entire book of Ephesians. And now we're finishing tonight Philippians. Those are all on my YouTube channel, verse by verse. Be excited. Make it something you do with your family. Order pizza. Get your Bibles out. Get your highlighters out. And go with me verse by verse. This is not like the streams where I just preach. This is not like the topical streams. This is not like the Q&As. This is not like the podcast. This is where we dive deep into the word of God and we look at what is God saying. And I try to simplify some of the more complex parts of the word that maybe are hard to understand. So that's part three. We're doing new King James version. So get your new King James out on your app, on your phone, make it exciting. The word of God is exciting. If your kids see you excited about this, they'll be excited about this. If your kids see you excited about Jesus, they will be. Now, maybe it's they see the excitement in sports, but not in God. Maybe they see the excitement of your new promotion that you haven't t- stopped talking about in a year, but they don't see any passion or excitement for God. So show your kids, man, I'm excited about God. I'm passionate about this thing. I'm dedicated to this thing. And that's going to help them see you. And then they'll also be excited because they follow in your footsteps, whether you think it or like it or not. Show them that you're more passionate about the word of God than you are about sports and about movies and about music. So get your Bibles out. Get excited for the word of God. We're going into part three, preaching every single verse. 10 years before Paul even wrote this letter, to the church in Philippi. He visited the town of Philippi on a second missionary journey. This was around AD 52. So 52 years after Jesus died and rose, Paul wrote this letter. Acts chapter 16 tells us the whole story of what happened there in Philippi. If you want to look into that. And again, we're using new King James. So we're going to be in chapter four and we'll end tonight and we'll do all of chapter four tonight, take our time, and then we'll go into communion and then we will wrap it up and start maybe next week, another verse by verse, because we're trying to get through the whole new Testament. It's going to take a few years, but here we are. Let me give you a recap. If you're just jumping on of chapter three, and if I'm talking too fast for you, you can go rewind and watch it. This will be all recorded. This will be posted. You could rewind it. Don't stress out. You're like, it's too fast. You can rewatch it to take notes and do all that stuff. So chapter three, Paul talks about there was false teachers that were influencing the believers. And Paul was concerned that those who are proposing circumcision for salvation were making the church in Philippi earn their salvation. So Paul comes against the false teaching and false idea that you need to be circumcised to be able to be saved. And Paul says, no, it's not about works. It's about circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual matter. So Paul said the act of circumcision is just mutilating the body, but it doesn't save the soul. That's Philippians chapter three, verses two through three. So no, there's no work you can do now in the new covenant to gain salvation. Salvation is gained by just because of grace and and through faith. That's how we attain salvation. It's the grace of God. And it's by putting our faith in Jesus that we are saved, not by doing an outward work. And a lot of times we think if I could just pray more, if I could just read more, if I could just study more, if I can do more on the outside, as if I'm working for some secular boss, then I can climb the ranks and 
earn my salvation through works. And then if I don't do the works, I lose it. That's not what the Bible teaches, which we'll go into the book of life and all that tonight, answer those questions. Paul then goes on to say, if anyone deserved to go to heaven based on their activities or their family qualifications, it was Paul. Paul had done everything. He came from the right background. He went through the schooling. He knew all that you could know in tradition. Yet after meeting Jesus personally, Paul says, listen, there's nothing you can do to get in right standing. And honestly, Paul goes, I consider all of that loss like rubbish. It means nothing in comparison to my encounter with God. So there's qualifications. I was raised in church. That doesn't matter. I, I want you to hear me clear. There's a lot of young people watching in the chat right now. Just because you were raised in church doesn't mean you were raised in Christ. Being raised in church does not get you into heaven. It does not gain you relationship with God. It does not gain you a special place of favor. You need to be in relationship. These merits or qualifications we think that gain us some special favor, they don't gain a special favor with God. It's our faith and it's only by the grace of God. And then lastly, in chapter three, Paul was more concerned with pressing on towards maturity and in knowing their citizenship in heaven. He says, you can have joy because your citizenship is not on earth. So whatever I'm going through on earth, whatever trials, tribulations, these are all temporary. These are, these don't matter in light of eternity. I can, I consider all that I'm going through now, nothing compared to what I'm going to experience in eternity. We're citizens of heaven. I know many of you are proud of being American citizens or citizens of Africa or citizens of India or wherever it is you're from. Maybe you're proud, maybe you're not. But at the end of the day, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is not found in earthly realms. It's found in heavenly places. So this is what we are excited about. We're not worried and stressed out. Oh, the present, oh, this, oh, that. We're worried about what is God doing we're going to get in prayer, we're going to fast, and we're not going to stress out about what the world is saying or what the world is doing. That leads us into Philippians chapter 4, really good chapter. Open it up. We're going to go chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to take my time here because it's the last chapter of the last part of our series. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Follow with me here now. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand in the Lord, beloved. So Paul is addressing his brethren and sisters and he says, my joy and crown. He's calling them his joy and crown. And, and then his final charges, stand fast in the Lord. Now, if we called our spiritual brothers and sisters our joy or our crown, that might seem a little bit weird. Like everybody in this chat that's a Christian, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it might be weird if I'm like, you're my joy and you're my crown. You'd go like, what are you on Isaiah? What's going on with you? If I told you that when the world has gotten into Isaiah, but this is actually what Paul is saying. Paul is calling these believers that are his brothers and sisters and also spiritual children, his joy and crown because he's describing his relationship with them. He goes, you gave me a reason to be proud, a reason to rejoice, and I'm so proud of you. You are my joy. You are my crown. And I, I feel, I do, now don't get all weird on me here, but I do feel that way with you guys. Many of you, I'm so extremely proud of you. You are my joy. I'm, I get so much joy out of seeing you reach people for the gospel. It brings me great joy when I hear stories of what God is doing in your life. When many of you say, I'm having revival in my home and my marriage is on fire for God. And we're seeing people get delivered in our garage and people are getting healed and baptized in the Holy Spirit and the presence and the power of God is moving. It brings me joy. It's what, it's what keeps me going when I look at and go, man, I've made 900 videos and this is the honest to God reality. And I'm like, I don't even know if I can make another video. What could I say? I've went through every topic I could think of multiple times. And now I'm going through just books of the Bible because I've gone through so much and I feel demotivated at times. 
I feel discouraged so often on just preaching and teaching and more videos and more traveling. I get tired. I get weary and I go like, man, is it even impacting people? And I know this is, that's a lie from the enemy because I know it is. Of course it is. But you get discouraged. You see the numbers go way up on the live streams. Then you see the numbers go way down and you go, what? How is it? And you get all this discouragement. But then I think about and I rejoice in your guys' testimonies. Those of you that come in here and say, it changed my life. I really wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for God using you to reach me. I wouldn't be laying hands and praying for you. I wouldn't see miracles in my life. I wouldn't be saved. I wouldn't be delivered. I'd still be out in the new age. I'd still be in bondage. It brings me great hope and great assurance, and it makes me extremely proud to hear what God is doing in your guys' life. So this is the sentiment that Paul is describing. He says, man, I'm proud of you guys. I rejoice in what God is doing in your life. For Paul, he's saying like, you guys are like the victory wreath that a runner wears after crossing the finish line in a race. A, a runner gets a crown in, back in those days. He would get a wreath that represents all the time that he spent training, all the time that he spent running. That, that victory crown was his joy, and that was something that made him proud, and it made it worth it. And this is what Paul is saying about you guys. He's saying in the same way, these people make me feel like everything I've done, and this is Paul speaking, and I'm just, of course, illustrating it with also how I felt in my life. All these things that I've done are all worth it, and they're not in vain. They're not worthless. It's not a waste of life to do what I'm doing. Paul says it's worth it. Imagine how many lives could drastically change if you said yes to God. Like, imagine all the people that I've personally been able to impact from one yes on January 12th of 2011, the night I was saved. And imagine all the lives you could impact if you said yes to God more often. If you said, God, I'm not going to keep telling you no, but I'm going to say yes to your way, yes to your will. I'm going to recognize tonight it's not just about you or me, but it's about all the massive amount of people God wants you to reach. Like if your daily yes to God can cause a ripple effect on the lives of people here on this earth and also ultimately where they're going to go for eternity. My choice in the early days of salvation to get rid of things that were holding me back, my choice to break up with the girl that God said that's not going to be your wife even though I was with her for four years, the choice I made to walk away from my career that I was pursuing in law enforcement, the choice that I made to walk away from friends that I'd spent you know, 15 years being friends with and 12, 13 years being friends with and walking away from those things, all the choices I made to say no to the things that I loved before I was saved and then yes to God these have created a ripple effect to where I'm at today. I would not be here if I didn't make these choices. Your choices matter. It matters that every day you say yes to God, not just for my sake. And come on, somebody's waking up in this preaching tonight. Not just for my sake, but my grandkids, my friends at work, my friends at school, like they're all depending on your yes. Like imagine if Isaiah didn't say yes to God that night. None of us would be in this broadcast. I wouldn't be here. I probably wouldn't be married with four kids. I wouldn't be serving God. I wouldn't have been able to reach the millions of people that God has used me to reach all because I said no to God and yes to my flesh and yes to my own desires. That's what the Christian life in essence is about. It's a, it's a life of denying yourself. It's a life of saying no to my will, yes to God's will. Jesus said it this way. If anyone wants to gain his life, he has to lose it first. Like if you hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you let go of your life, then you're going to gain it for the sake of the gospel. So don't even just think, you know, you're like, I don't know. Maybe I'll backslide. Maybe I won't. It's not even about you. 
It's about all the people God's called you to reach. There's a million people that you can't see right now that God has called you to reach that you just haven't reached yet. And the potential that you have, somebody needs to hear this tonight, is infinitely greater than you can imagine. The people that God desires you to reach is infinitely greater than you can imagine. So the next time you're worried about what people think, the next time you're tempted to say no to God and yes to men, the next time you're tempted to give into your flesh and give into that, that sin that you think is unconsequential to your life, think about all the people that might not be changed because you make a bad decision. Think about all the people that might not be impacted because you didn't say yes to God and say, Lord, I'm not just saying yes for me, but Lord, all the people that you want me to reach. I didn't, I didn't know 12 years ago in 2011 that I was going to reach millions and millions of people. I didn't know what God was going to do to this magnitude. All I knew was I had a daily yes. And this is all God is asking you have a daily yes. All that Paul did was worth it. He said, you're my joy, my crown. Now there's two Greek words for the word crown, diodema and Stephanos. And Paul didn't use the diodema because it refers to a kingly crown. So there's the kingly crown in the Greek. And then there's the crown that is the Stephanos that conveys two different meanings. The first meaning is a crown of victorious athletes at the Greek games. And the second meaning is reward at a banquet for public service, military accomplishments, or a time of great joy like a wedding. So either of these two definitions, they define Paul's feelings he had for the Philippians. Symbolically, he pictured them as wearing his crown, his crown, his crowning glory when he sat at the final banquet of, of God in heaven. So Paul's like, you guys are my crown, my joy, my reward. When I stand before God, I'm going to see the people that I've impacted. Like imagine you stand before God, you're in heaven. You're going to be able to be in heaven and God's going to show you and you're going to see all the people that you've impacted for the glory of God. So maybe we don't meet in this life, but friend, this life is fleeting. This life is short. This life is really not very valuable in light of eternity. Every one of us that are believers will spend eternity together in glory. This is the crown. This is the joy that Paul's describing. He knows that he's going to enjoy heaven with these people. And never once does he think that material possessions are more important than, than spiritual accomplishments. This is something that we've devalued in our society. We don't value spirituality and it's Christian spirituality, not like new age spirituality. And we don't value spiritual matters and spiritual disciplines and spiritual principles. But what we value is material. So you're in a church and you go, oh, I pray two hours a day. That is going to be not valuable at all in other people's eyes as comparison to driving a really expensive car and having an extremely good job or being extremely popular or having a large business like you have a large business at your local church you're a very wealthy well-known influential man that's what people are going to know you by in your church oh that guy that's so and so he has a lot of money and he has a lot of influence nobody cares about the guy that prays for two to three hours nobody cares about the guy that's discipling people baptizing people preaching on the street helping the poor that guy the guy that helps the poor prays for three hours a day is baptizing people in his home having home bible studies is way down here on the totem pole and the guy that's wealthy in the world's eyes influential in the world's eyes he's the guy that people look to and the kingdom of god goes mm, actually it's not about material possessions and being influential or popular it's actually about spiritual things so paul was not even worried about Paul's in prison most of the time he's writing these letters. He's not worried about these like worldly accomplishments many people are. And we're still in verse one, so we need to go, we need, definitely need to go here. 
Then Paul says, he urges his friends to this, stand fast in the Lord. Now stand fast in the Greek is stakit, and it's described to denote a soldier standing fast during battle, even though the enemy is attacking. So imagine you're trying to guard a territory and the enemy is approaching and attacking you. You could either retreat and run from the battle and do what most people do, or you can stand firm, fight back and hold your ground. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, stand fast in the Lord, hold your ground. When the enemy comes, we put on the armor of God and we fight back. We don't run like everybody else. We're not, you know, afraid of the enemy. Paul says, stand fast in the Lord. So that's like saying he went in the water. Okay. If you go in the water, that means the water is surrounding you. So Paul says, this is good preaching tonight, y'all stand in the Lord. So like imagine standing in water. That's how you stand in the Lord. So uh, the Lord's not just in me, but I'm also standing in the omnipresence of the Lord and God is around me. God is next to me. He's above me. He's in front of me. He's here. He's here. He's here. He fills all space. So when I take on that armor of God, when I step into my high calling, I now stand in the Lord. This is my indict. This is my charge to you tonight. Stand in the Lord. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you feel like giving up tonight, if you're discouraged, Stand in the Lord and God will fight your battles for you. So this is what Paul is saying. And one thing I want to point out is Paul is always encouraging the people he's writing to. He's always telling them how much they mean to him. He, and this is something we can learn from Paul. We need to all be more encouraging. We need to tell our kids, our spouse, the people around us in our churches, in our lives, how much they matter, how much they mean to us and how much they mean to God. Some of us need someone to encourage them. Someone, some of us need someone to say, you matter. It matters that you serve God. It matters that you, I, I see the way you're encouraging others. I see the way you work so hard. I see the way you provide so hard for the family. I see the way you take care of the house and the kids, you do all this. I'm preaching myself. My wife's listening right now. She's like, you better preach. You don't do that enough. I'm telling myself as well, I need to be more encouraging of others. And I'm extremely encouraging of my ch- to my children, but I need to be more encouraging to my wife more encouraging to my fellow pastor friends, more encouraging to people in my family. Hey, I just want to encourage you that you're doing a great job. That's life changing for so many people. And this is something Paul keeps doing over and over and over again. I thank God for you. I thank God for this. I thank God for that. You're my joy. You're my crown. Stand in the Lord. I'm proud of you. You're worthy. You matter. So these are things that should should encompass the Christian life. And Paul's going to keep charging us with other things that we should be doing. And there's 18 minutes on verse one. So we definitely need to move faster than that. Philippians chapter four, verses two through three. I implore you, Euodia, and I implore you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names, this is where I want to key in on, are in the book of life. Okay, so Paul says in verse one, stand fast. And although he meant that for everyone in the church in Philippi, he particularly had these two women in mind, Euodia and Syntyche, which I'm probably saying their name wrong, but I'm trying my best. And he wants them to stand fast in unity. So we don't know, we don't know the details and we don't want to jump to conclusions. But what we know from the text is there's some type of conflict happening between these two women. And Paul's like, hey, you guys need to unify together. There's some type of conflict happening in these two women in the church. Paul wants them to be unified. And Paul's asking the church to help them unify. Because here's the deal. And here's something I want you to write down. Nobody wins when division triumphs. Let me say that again. You write this in the chat. 
Nobody wins when division triumphs. When division is winning in our churches and in the body of Christ, nobody wins. The devil loves division. The devil loves division. If you, oh, help me, Holy Spirit. All right. If you're following a ministry that's divisive, they're always causing division. They're always calling people out, drawing the line. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Every other preacher. If there's a channel you're following where they've called out, let's just say at least 10 false teachers, you should unsubscribe from that channel because that is a divisive ministry. If you could find 10 false teachers that easily to make hours and two hours and 10 videos on and divide the body of Christ and make it to where either you're on my side or you're on their side, that is divisive and the enemy loves division. So this is one thing why I won't be tempted into making drama videos. It's easy clicks, easy views, but I don't, I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to divide people unnecessarily and start saying, if you follow that guy, call his name out on a video. If you follow that guy, you can't follow me. If you're a part of them, you're considered false. These are things that are divisive. Now we can come against ideas and teachings and principles, but I'm not going to attack all these specific people to try to get you to divide because I know the devil loves division. Division comes from drama. Drama starts division and people love drama. So this is the problem. People love drama. This is why the Kardashians is always going to be like the number one most watched show because people love drama. So these, a lot of these guys that make these videos, they, they see that people love the drama. So they keep making the drama and the drama causes division. But God is not a God of division. Jesus said, how will a kingdom that's divided stand? So we need to be careful that we're not allowing division or divisiveness in our midst. And this is something that was happening. And Paul's like, hey, I implore you, be of the same mind in the Lord. You two ladies that are debating this or arguing or whatever conflict you're going through, be in the same mind. Stop bickering over non-salvific issues that don't even matter, but get together and unify. If we don't even, and that's something in 2023, I'm, I want to do more. I want to talk to more Christians that don't have the same views as me, the same beliefs as me, that are still Christian, that are still doing great things for God. And I want to talk and dialogue with them rather than saying, oh, he doesn't believe in this and that. He must be a false teacher, a false prophet. Let's dialogue and let's realize the hand doesn't say to the eye, we don't need you. The eye doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. The different parts of the body, they don't need to be bickering and fighting. Don't get mad that you're not the same part of the body as me. Just let me do the part I do and you do the part you do. Like I had a guy who's an old friend of mine and still a friend, but I haven't talked to him in years, but we used to do a lot of ministry together. You know, he's out making these videos now of fake deliverance ministry versus true deliverance ministry. And in my mind, I'm like, number one, this guy doesn't even do deliverance ministry, but number two, and he's not throwing shade at me or anybody specifically, but I'm just like, listen, if you don't do deliverance or you don't lay hands on the sick or you don't do spiritual gifts, then why are you coming against it? Don't come against it. Just say, hey, I don't do deliverance. I don't uh, I don't do miracles or I don't believe in the gifts. So, hey, you do that. I'm going to do my thing. But don't try to bring division in the church and come against things that Jesus clearly did. So you, you see what I'm saying? Just stay in your lane and don't tell other body parts that what they're doing is not mat doesn't matter or it's wrong when it's just a different part of the body. If God's called you to emphasize on miracles or deliverance or repentance or healing or music ministry or theology or then praise the Lord, you're that part of the body. We don't have to all do it all, but don't get mad at other body parts because they're not doing what you're doing. They're not false because they're not doing what you're doing. So we're striving for unity. Okay, but then he says at the end of this, look at what he says here, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul refers to the book of life within which every true believer in Jesus is listed. 
Only those on that list will enter heaven. Other than Paul's mention of the book of life in this letter, the phrase isn't used in anywhere else in scripture, but in the book of Revelation. So very interesting. This is the only place other than the book of Revelation we see the book of life. But there is places like example, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, where it says your names are written in heaven. So it doesn't say the book of life, but it says your names are written somewhere in heaven. And then now we know because of Paul, there's this book of life where names are going to be written down. If you are a true believer in Christ, you have put your faith in him. You're walking according to his word. You've repented of your sin. You've done what you need to do. Then your name, listen how amazing this is. Your name gets written in the book of life. Now let's look at what the book of Revelation has to say about the book of life because I'm very interested and I'm very intrigued about the book of life and the books of life, which I'll talk about that as well. And I'm very interested on making sure my name is, my name is in this book. Like, I don't want to be in heaven and God open the book of life and go, uh, what was your last name again? Hold on. Give me a second. Like, I don't, I don't want there to be a hesitation. I want to be bold. The righteous are bold on that day of judgment. I don't want to sneak in and what Paul says in one letter, you barely escape the flames and you barely make it to heaven. I'm not trying to have my name like barely in there on some side page. I want my name in the book of life. So if Paul says these people are in the book of life, I'm like, Hey, I want to be like these people. I want to be in. So the most important question that we could answer and ask tonight is my name in the book of life. And so let's look at what the Bible says about the book of life. Revelation, I'll, I'll go through every place in Revelation where it talks about the book of life and I'll try to explain it the best I can. Revelation chapter three, verse five. This is the first place in Revelation we see the book of life. He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And then this is Jesus talking here. Look, and I will not blot his name from the Lamb's book of, I'm sorry, let me say that again. I will not blot his name from the book of life. Some people call it the Lamb's book of life, but let me just call it the book of life and be honest to the text here. So this is what Jesus is saying. Clothed in white garments, I will not blot his name from the book of life. But, so here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to blot your name out, but here's what I am going to do. But, so here's the contrast. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So here's Jesus speaking. He says, if you overcome, you're going to be clothed in white garments and I won't blot your name out. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus says, I will not blot his name out if he overcomes, do you think, and I want you to say yes or no in the chat. Do you think that this means it's possible for Jesus to blot someone's name out if it's already been written previously? So he says, I won't blot your name out if you overcome. So wouldn't that mean he can blot other people's names out type yes or no that's a huge yes for me that's a capital yes because again the the once saved always saved the calvinist group the reformed group they're not gonna they don't like they're not gonna like what i'm saying here but the reality is this god can after having written your name because this is the argument well how could you be in the book of life and then if you back and then you know once saved always saved says how could your name get written out if it's already in or how could you be a son of god and then god abandoned his own son well easy God gives us right to become his children according to the book of John. So it's not, you're not born a child of God. It's a right privilege. It's a privilege that God gives you. He gave us right, John chapter one says. And then number two, very clearly, I will not blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. So this makes it where once saved, always saved makes no sense. If once saved, always saved was true, how could God blot someone's name out then? And why would Jesus say, I won't blot your name out if you overcome? So the contrast is, if you don't overcome and if you don't serve him the way we're called to serve him and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, 
and we already talked about what that means, then God can, and God looks like will, blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said it this way, if you deny me here on earth, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. But he hears, But here he says, I will confess you before my Father and before all of his angels. So it goes into perfect alignment with what he says in the Gospels in the New Testament. So if you turn to Christ and serve him, he writes your name in the Lamb's book of life. You say, Lord, I believe in you. I put my faith in you. It's not by works. It's by faith. I trust you. I repent of my sin. Acts 2.38. We must repent. I'm going to follow you. Do everything you've asked me to do. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you later apostate and turn from Christ and live for yourself, then God can blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. Like a, like a whiteout. God wipes it out as if it's never been there. Think of that reality. You get before God on judgment day. And I say this with all the fear of the Lord in me. And God says, your name was there, but I blotted your name out. Like you were in the book. You were there, but I blotted your name out because you've turned from me. You've worshiped other idols. You've disobeyed the Lord, your God. You lived your life as if there was no standard or no law or no, 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 uh, lordship to live by. And you did miracles and you prophesied and you cast out demons, but depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't have this like relationship. We had no history together. You never went in the secret place. We didn't know each other. There was no divine connection that I longed for. Yeah, you were in church, but you weren't in Christ and your name was there. There was a time where you were passionate about me. Jeremiah three, I remember you in the kindness of your youth. There was a time where you loved me, where you called out to me, but then you drifted and you turned from the Lord, your God, and you worshiped other gods and other idols. And you served mammon and you served culture and you served the gods of this world. And you, you tolerated that woman Jezebel to pollute your waters. And you had a reputation, Church of Sardis, of being alive, but you're dead. You're just like the Laodicean church. There's a, there's a lukewarmness about you. So I, I, I noticed you no longer followed me and served me. So I just went ahead and blotted your name out of the Lamb's book of life. The name's just gone. And now I will say, depart from me. It's, it's a very sobering reality that pastors don't teach on. This is real. Is there eternal security? Of course. God, the devil can't take your salvation. That's eternal security. The devil can't take my salvation. But can I, for, can I forfeit what God has done? Of course I can. We have a free will. You're not a robot. Any one of you can backslide it anytime you want because that's a free will God has given you. The same way God gave Adam and Eve free will and they turned from him in the garden is the same way you can have free will and turn from him today. So this once saved, always saved false doctrine let me say that again because I think that might have came off harsh there. This once saved, always saved false doctrine teaches people they can live however they want and they're still going to be saved on judgment day. That is a scary reality. That's a scary reality to tell people, do whatever you want. There's no such thing as backsliding. There's no such thing as sinning. You know, once you're saved, you're always saved, brother. God can, no one can turn from God. And if you do backslide, you were never truly saved in the first place. All these weird things that they teach. It gives people a false sense of security. It's no wonder the church lives so carnal and worldly and no one repents anymore. That's a lie from the devil and the devil wants you to think that you're saved even if you're not saved. Okay, Revelation, the next time we see it, 13, 8. And I cannot believe I'm going so long here on this. Revelation 13, chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written, <clears throat> excuse me, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the book of life of the lamb slain from the nations of the world. This is speaking in Revelation 13 about the Antichrist. John is making it clear. Those that worship the beast, the Antichrist, the devil, and these systems, 
They're not Christians. Their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he says, of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was, okay, this gets a little complicated. I'll do my best to explain this, okay? Let me start here and just make it as clear as I can. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Okay. The beast existed. This is what the this is what John is saying in Revelation. The beast existed prior to John's lifetime. He once was. That's what he's saying. He did not exist when John received this revelation. So that's why it says now he's not. But the beast will appear at a later time, an unspecified date in the future, and people will worship him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the beast will come out of the abyss, out of the bottomless pit. And he'll eventually go to his destruction since God is going to cast the beast. We know the beast, the false prophet, and the Antichrist will be thrown in the lake of fire. God will cast him in the lake of fire and he'll take all of his followers, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world. Those people all go into the lake of fire with the beast. When the fifth trumpet sounds, remember, Satan opens up the bottomless pit and releases this demonic spirit, demonic spirits that are being held there. So this is all part of the Revelation tribulation timeline where these people that worship, praise the beast, take the mark, honor the Antichrist and his entire system. Now, those who don't have their names in the book of life are going to follow this beast and they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by things which were written in the books. Okay, so very important here. I want to break this all down. First of all, there's multiple books. So we know here, this is the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. We know there's not just one book. So there's the book of life. Okay, note this. And there's the book of your life. These are different books. So we see the books were opened. And then at the end, the last verse here, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, the books, they were judged by the things that were in the books. So there's multiple books. There's one book with every action and every day of your life recorded. This is get scary here. Just think about this. This is why David said, all the things I've done are written in your book. Before I even did them, every day has been written in your book, David says. That's not the book of life David's discussing. That's the book of your life. Okay, that's the book David talks about in the Old Testament. Now we see multiple books being opened and there's a book that has every action and work and deed that you've ever done, good or bad. So notice he says, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So you can't get away with, oh, I didn't do that. It wasn't me because what you've done was recorded in these books. Think about this, whether you're doing good things or bad things. So the book of life names recorded of those who are saved and the book of our lives, which is deeds and actions written. This is a scary, scary thought. Listen to this. When you're doing something bad or good, it gets written down. I wonder if we do less sinful things if we understand it's being recorded somewhere in heaven. When I do something sinful or bad, help me, Lord. I felt the fear of God. I'm like, Lord, I repent right now. I'm trying to think, what have I done, Lord? And this is a, this is a healthy fear of God. That action, that deed, not just good, because again, here it says good. It's not just good deeds. It's bad deeds because these people are getting thrown in a lake of fire. Now, 
these deeds that the dead are judged by are written down. Now, whenever I do something sinful, and I won't be graphic here, it's written down somewhere in heaven in a book. And then one day I'm going to stand before God on judgment. And if I'm not a believer, I'm going to have to take account for these things. And I'm going to be judged on these. If you are not a Christian, you are going to stand before God and he's going to open a book of all the things you've done and say, this is why you're condemned. These are the works. These are the sins, the things you've done that have disqualified you from the place of grace. Now, if you are a believer, the judgment is not going to be on, oh, you did this bad or you did this bad. The judgment's going to be on, did you have relationship with Jesus? Did you serve him? Did you give your life? Did you repent of your sins? And then your works will be what good works you did, whether you'll get a reward or not. So you're not going to have this, this great white throne type of judgment where you are, God condemns you to hell because what you did. Now you're what you did was under the blood of Jesus. We don't continue to do these things. We are washed by the blood of Jesus. And now we follow Christ. And Paul says, how could you, who was delivered from sin and you've been cleansed from sin, continue on in sin. So now that I don't do those things, those aren't going to be brought up anymore. Whatever God puts under his blood, and I'm going to ease some of you that are freaking out right now. Whatever he puts under his blood, he's not going to bring those things back up and be like, oh, well, what about this? And what about that? If it's under the blood, that's been forgotten. The Bible says he throws the sin in the sea of forgetfulness. Now that I have the knowledge of Christ and I'm a believer, if I continue on sinning, the Bible says that you're a son of the devil. So this is where now that I have the knowledge of sin, good and evil, I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. Now I, I stop in that sin. Now, if I do end up sinning, there's grace there to forgive me. I can come to God again and repent. So I don't want to make you think that all your things you've done bad after you became a Christian are going to be brought up. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying things are getting recorded and we're not getting to get off scot-free, living a life of disobedience and rebellion, thinking God forgot or God was too busy to think about it or worry about what you're doing. Because somebody, was it angels? I don't know. Somebody's recording the works that you've done, good or bad, and writing them down in books. And that should be incredibly terrifying and bring incredible joy to you that God is writing down these good works I'm doing and that maybe man's not rewarding me but as Jesus said your father in heaven will reward you for these things so it's not all gloom and doom now if you are the unbeliever if you are the unbeliever this is absolutely terrifying for you and you need to today make sure that your name's in the Lamb's book of life Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 through 15 and again I'm just referencing all the places in Revelation the book of life is about then death and Hades were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay, and I'm going to break this down for you. And anyone not written, excuse me, anyone found, my tongue is getting twisted. I want to make sure I read this exactly word for word here. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in a lake of fire. Okay, and I want to make sure I use the exact words because I don't want people to say, that's not what it says there. You used a different word. So this is right after the great white throne judgment. This is the result. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And those whose names are not in the book of life are going to get cast in the lake of fire. This will be the end of the first death, which is physical death. And this is good news for the believers, but terrible news for the unbelievers. Because the unbelievers will want to die physically when they're raised from the dead and cast into hell, but they'll no longer be able to. And I won't go into all of this, how this works. They're going to have new bodies that can't be destroyed in the lake of fire, and their suffering will be eternal. They, this will be the end of death as we know it. So after the great white throne judgment, we're in Revelation chapter 20. There will be no more death as we know it, because remember, the Bible speaks of two kinds of death. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Birth means jointed to. 
In physical birth, think about this, a soul and spirit are joined to a body. So when you're physically born, that's a soul and a spirit joined to a body. In spiritual birth, a soul and spirit are joined to God. We call that receiving Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, being born again, the new birth, okay? Physical birth, soul and spirit joined to body. Spiritual birth, soul and spirit joined to God. Now there's also two kinds of death, and I'm not trying to go too deep here. There's physical death and spiritual death. And the word death means to be separated from. That's all death means. When you see death, think of separated from, okay? Two deaths. There's physical death. Physical death occurs when a soul and spirit are separated from the body. There's also a spiritual death. A spiritual death is when a soul and spirit are separated from God. Are you guys, are you catching this tonight? So the second life is eternal life with God. So I'm trying to give you all the parallels here. And the second death is eternal separation from God being cast in the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. So physical birth, spiritual birth, physical death, spiritual death, a second life and a second death, second life, eternity with God, second death, separation from God eternally thrown in the lake of fire. I'm glad that makes sense there. Revelation, and again, these are very sometimes complex principles and I'm trying to, as best as I can, make them so you can understand it. And the last place we're going to see, and again, I know I'm taking extra, extra long in the book of life because we need to talk about this. The last place we see the book of life in scripture is Revelation 21, 27. But there shall be no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, Revelation 21, 27, we see it's called the Lamb's book of life. So it's not just the book of life, it's the Lamb's book of life, which is what I said earlier, but I wanted to be true to the text, so I corrected myself there, but it's okay to call it either one. Now, what what John is talking about now is the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem here, and we're going to be going to the New Jerusalem, and this is who can't go. Anything that defiles, any lies, anyone not in the book of life will not go to the New Jerusalem. Again, this is speaking of the New Jerusalem. Well, I want you to remember, and I want to just give you an overview of the New Jerusalem, how incredible it's going to be. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. If you don't know, the earth we currently live on will be cast away. There'll be no longer, it'll pass away, and there'll be a new heaven and a brand new earth. The heaven that's currently existing, there's going to be a new one, and the glory of the new heaven is going to be infinitely greater of the glory of the old heaven. The glory of the new earth is going to be infinitely greater than the glory of the older. So heaven and earth pass away. Revelation 21, there's a new Jerusalem. Now, let me just describe it because I won't go through the whole chapter, but I think it's beautiful to describe what the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21, will look like. The main street of the holy city is pure gold. The gold is so pure, the Bible says, it looks like glass. The city features 12 pearly gates, each made from a single pearl. John says the city sparkles and be excited about this because we're all going to be living here for eternity one day. All of us are going to live in this city. So more than being excited about the new Zillow listing, the new house that's being listed that you're going to go look at, I'm describing to you where you're going to be living for all of eternity. So this is something to be like, whoa, that's a nice place I'm going to be going to. So John says the city sparkles like a precious stone and he compares it to crystal clear jasper. An angel guards each of the 12 pearly gates and the gates feature the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city has four sides with three pearl gates on each side. I'm trying to go here, y'all, like right now. For real, though. The city walls are broad and high with 12 foundation stones, and the names of the 12 apostles are written on each of the stones. The new city shines with the glory of God, and its size is greater than any city in history. You thought that these cities in ancient 
Egypt and stuff were big. This will be the largest city in history. The New Jerusalem will be 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 14, listen to this, everybody in the chat, 1,400 miles high, okay? Its walls are 216 feet thick. This means the New Jerusalem is either a cube or a pyramid. We don't know exactly, but that's it's the exact dimensions every direction. So basically, imagine a city that takes up half of the continental U.S. and extends as far as half of the U.S. high up into the air. And the materials that are being used to build it are incredibly rare and valuable. So half the U.S., we're going to build a city. We're, we're going to build a city that's going to be the size of half the U.S. And we're going to use the most expensive crystal gold, jasper, carnelian, onyx, every, every crystal gold you can think of, diamonds, that's all we're going to use to build the city that's half the U.S. And then here's gets crazier. We're going to build it as long as half the U.S. and as high as half the U.S. This is going to be the new Jerusalem. The city walls are pure jasper. The city itself is pure gold. Gold as clear as glass. Each of the city's 12 foundation stones is inlaid with precious stone. These stones include jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, um, cryoprase, I don't know how to say that, jacinth, and amethyst. And the human mind cannot begin to grasp the beauty of this heavenly city. Think about it. Pure gold as clear as glass. That doesn't even exist here. Gold that is so pure, no defilement at all, no impurities in the gold at all, that it's completely clear gold. An entire wall made of jasper, the foundation stone with the most colorful and exotic stones ever created in, in the earth. That will be the name. That will be what the city is made out of. That's a beautiful city, if you ask me. Last place we see the book of life is in Revelation twenty-two nineteen. And if anyone takes away from these words of the book of this prophecy, God, look at this. God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Wow. Let's let's, let's say that again. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So what, what John is talking about here is if you take away from the words here, if you twist them, manipulate them, preach them differently, if you take away from these, if you say these aren't true and they're a lie and you're the raging atheist, this is the Bible is written by man, it can't be trusted, all these, if you're taking away from this book of prophecy, you get taken out of the book of life, you lose your place in the holy city, which is the new Jerusalem. And the promises that were written in this book, not for you. Again, we see a second time somebody's taken out of the Lamb's book of life. So here's the question we have to ask. Is your name in that book? Is your name in the book? How do I get in the book? I must repent of my sin, turn to Jesus, follow after Jesus, put our faith in him, put our trust in him, and live a life connected to him. That's what we must do. We must put our faith in Jesus. That's the only way that we can do this. There's no other way. God is looking for people tonight to say, I want my name in that book. I want my name in the book of life. I'm not playing games with this. And we'll pray for you at the end of this after communion, but I want to make sure that it's there. Okay, we've done three verses in 45 minutes. Let's go quickly here. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So you might think, well, Paul's a broken record. He's you know saying rejoice over and over and over multiple times throughout this letter. But Paul is not talking about in rejoicing, just walking around happy all the time when good things happen. His definition is different of joy is different than happiness. Happiness is something that happens to you. 
Joy is something you choose by believing that God will bring good out of everything, including bad things. Let me say that again. Happiness is something that happens to you. Joy is something you choose by believing God will bring out of everything good, including bad things. So no matter what I'm going through, joy says God's going to bring something good out of this. I know it might not look good. I know it might not feel good, but God's going to bring something. And we know Paul maintained his joy even while in chains, even while under guards, even to the point of death. Paul is rejoicing in God because Paul's not living with temporary happiness. One commentator said this, God does not expect you to be thankful for evil, for sin, or for suffering or for painful consequences in the world. Instead, God wants you to thank him that he'll use your problems to fulfill his purposes. Philippians 4 through 5, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So joy is an inner response, but gentleness is how joy and trust in God are demonstrated outwardly. So he says, let your gentleness, Philippians 4, chapter 4, verse 5, be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So we want to be known as gentle people, not harsh, not rude, not rash, not bitter, to treat people with love and patience. If you're one of those that's always blowing up on everybody, holding unforgiveness, don't know how to treat people, that's not gentleness. We need to be gentle. We need, we need to be people that are patient with other people. Another aspect of gentleness is when you treat people with respect who other people think don't deserve respect. So for example, Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery. Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well who wasn't respected by the village. Jesus forgiving and comforting Peter when Peter denied him. These three people are not respected by others, but God says, I'm going to respect them. I'm going to show gentleness toward them. I'm going to show love towards those that other people don't love. Not respectable to others, but Jesus shows respect to others that don't deserve it or don't other people don't show them. Philippians, this will change your life right here. I love this. You should memorize this if you're dealing with anxiety or stress. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So Paul is in a in is on a roll basically defining the characteristics of a Christian walking with God. So we know that the Christian with God walking with the spirit has joy, gentleness. Now, Paul says they also have peace. And of course, these people in Philippi were worried about many things. They could have been persecuted. They could have been on a death list. These are first century Christians that had a dangerous life. And Paul says this, don't be anxious about anything. So what is Paul indicating? This is important that you need to write this down. Paul is indicating that anxiety is something you can control. And Paul is indicating being anxious is something you can control. Some people think of worry as something that's out of my control. I just can't help but worry. But Paul's saying, no, this is something that you can fight against. And I'm preaching to myself here. Anxiety and stress is something that you can fight against. Paul says, be anxious about nothing. So is there something worthy of being anxious about? No, no, there's nothing in my life worthy of being anxious about because Paul says be anxious about nothing there's no exceptions there's no inclusions here like well that doesn't include this or that does include this it's be anxious about nothing and how could we stop from being anxious okay that sounds great I don't want to be anxious I deal with anxiety sometimes I get anxious to preach I get anxious to do events I get anxious to go on the live stream sometimes so what do I do Paul because you're telling me not to be anxious and this is the formula Paul gives okay recognize that nothing's worth being anxious about, nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. So I recognize 
God is interested in my life. Nothing's worth being anxious about. Then I pray. So Paul says, what do we do now? We pray about everything. What should I pray about? Everything. And I know there's people that, and I got to be careful how I say this. They make fun of like, well, you don't have to pray about everything. And, you know, people pray about this. But, you know, Paul says pray about everything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. So is it bad to pray too much? No. Only carnal, unspiritual Christians say, oh, you don't really need to pray about everything. Pray about everything, Paul says. Pray about everything. So this is petitioning God, requesting God's help in specific needs. Thanksgiving. So along with requesting and praying, thanking God for what he's done and what he will do. And then letting God know what you need. Call God's attention to, to the things that are of concern. Let God know what you're going through. Let God know. Let your requests be made known to God. He knows all what you need before you ask, but it's relational, not transactional, relational. And then after you do those things, so you recognize, you pray, you petition God, you present your request, you give him thanksgiving, then guess what happens? Peace comes. So by faith, God releases peace that surpasses all understanding. But often, very important here, the way you get the peace that surpasses all understanding is you need to give up your own understanding. Here's what you need to write down. His ways are not my ways. That means God does things differently than me. Okay, so if I have a situation at work or at school or and I go, God, or physical, I need healing, whatever it is. And I go, God, if I was you, I would just, because we always think about, I would just do this. I would just wave my hand. I would just blink and the person's healed or the job would be, you know, I would get the job back or the marriage would be restored. Like, this is how I would do it. But you have to remember his ways are not our ways. So God's not going to do it the way you do it. So let God work. Let your understanding go and the peace of God will come and will flood your heart. And then he says the peace of God will guard your hearts, guard your hearts against the attacks of the enemy, against discouragement. I need my heart to be guarded against discouragement. I need my heart to be guarded against anxiety. I need my heart guarded against stress. The peace is the guard. And the word guard is a translation from a Greek word, which is a military term, meaning to protect or garrison by guarding. It's like a bunch of soldiers around a city that's about to get attacked, defending their position. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, will guard your heart against the attacks of the enemy and against anxiety. So don't be anxious. Could have Paul been anxious? Of course. Now, he doesn't say don't worry about things. You could worry and, and give attention to things, but we're not anxious about them. We understand that we can't control every situation. And ultimately, God is in control of our life. So that's, that's how you break anxiety. Lord, you're in control. Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brother. And then he's going to give us another solution. Don't click off this. Stay on here. We're about to get another solution to overcoming this thing. What do we do, Paul? We pray, we do this. Okay. And then Philippians four, chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, that's already six things he's told us. If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So don't be, instead of being anxious and worry, this is what you need to do. Meditate on these things. And the Greek word for meditate is concentrated focus effort. It means it doesn't happen by accident. 
So Paul is saying you need to intentionally fix your mind on things that reflect and reveal the nature of God. Don't let your mind wander off. That's how you get anxiety. Your mind starts wandering. What about this? What if this happens? You get a little pain somewhere in your chest and you go, I might have cancer. I might die in two weeks. You start Googling. Oh, that's the first sign of heart. That's the first sign of heart failure. It's like we just get anxious. And these David said, my anxious thoughts multiply. So get a grip. Think about good things. Okay. The Greek word for true is athletes, which means real, truthful, and honest. Think about the honest things. Don't let... WebMD or Google make you think you're going to die because you have a headache, okay? The problem is many of us don't focus on things that are true or real or honest, but we think about things that are never going to even happen. A study done by Dr. Walter Culver, funded by the National Science Foundation, revealed startling statistics about human beings and worry. Look at this. 30% of our worries are about past events. 30%. 40% of the things we worry about never happen. So 40% never even happened. And I know this because I've had, I've preached, how many times have I preached? I don't even know how many. Several thousand times, 2,000 maybe estimated times in the last 12 years. 13 years will be, uh, January 12th will be finishing 13 years of ministry because I got saved in January. That'll be 13 complete years of ministry. I've preached thousands of times. And probably almost every time I've ever got up to preach, a thought comes in my head because I don't use notes. My thought comes like, what if I don't remember anything? What if I forget everything God wants me to preach? What if I, I'm at a loss for words up there? Everyone's just staring at me, okay? I probably thought that every single time I'm going to preach. I have that thought cross my head. 40% of things we worry about never happen. Do you know what's never happened before? I've never got up and forgot. I've never got up and been like embarrassed, okay? So I've worried thousands of times about not being able to preach something because I'm going to forget it and it's never, ever, ever happened. So anxiety and worry are things usually that never happen. 12% of our worries are unfounded health concerns. 10% of our worries are over minor and trivial issues. And only 8% of all worries are real legitimate worries. So that means 92% of everything that statistically we're worried about are not even going to matter. Don't even happen. So stop worrying so much. Realize God is in control. Now, why is this the case? Because the devil's a liar. That's why. The devil's a liar and he wants you to think of untrue things, but we need to... Think about true things. So we think about true things. The devil's the author of lies. So we need to think about true, noble things, which is things that are worthy and respected. Just things, which being just is being right. There's right things and wrong things. There's no, in some areas, there's no gray areas. There's things that are right and things that are wrong. So don't think about the wrong things. Think about the right things. That's that's just. Pure is where there's no mixture. It's like they're not mixing things. There's a purity. Lovely refers to promoting peace rather than conflict. Okay, so we don't think about conflict and anger and biting, fighting people. Not biting. You shouldn't be biting people, but fighting people. That's lovely. And then of good report. That's worthy to be followed after a copy. Things that are good report. When someone acts in a positive way, that's a good report. So we need to think about those things. One commentator said, Paul's wording of meditate on these things isn't as passive as it sounds. It actually means to fill all your thoughts with these things. Paul doesn't want any corner of your mind to think about things other than the wonderful things he mentions. If we don't sweep away negative and mean thinking from even one, one shelf on our mind's cabinets, we could gather more dust bunnies of negative thinking and then, and then grow stronger. So the goal is filling our minds with things that are healthy and pure. Positive thinking is biblical. Not new age positive thinking, biblical positive thinking. Philippians 4, 9, we're almost done. These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things and the God, 
These do, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul says very confidently, the things you see me doing and the way you see me living, follow after these things. Okay, this is learned things that I've taught you. You've received from me. You've heard from me. You've saw me do. You've observed. Think about these things and do these things. Philippians chapter four, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, knowing that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now, this all goes back to Epaphroditus brought Paul, brought um, Paul word about the Philippian church and along with it brought a financial gift. So when Epaphroditus visited Paul, I talked about this several, like a month ago. I won't go into it again. He brought Paul financial gifts. In fact, more than most of the churches, the church in Philippi was financially helping Paul. So Paul was under house arrest. He couldn't work for a living. He was totally dependent on the gifts from other people in the church. And it wasn't that he was looking for this luxurious lifestyle because he was actually barely making ends meet. But Paul was thanking them because they were providing for him financially. And he trusted that God would provide for him through them. That's how God provides. And the Philippians were unable to send a gift for about two years at one point because they didn't know where Paul was. But once they found out Paul was in prison, they sent a financial gift. So as we read through these next few verses, he's speaking about financial gifts. They were sowing into him financially. A principle that Paul taught was, if somebody lives preaching the gospel, hello, but Paul taught this principle. If somebody lives preaching the gospel, they should be financially supported because them preaching the gospel. Like they're working the field. If the ox is working the field, he should be able to eat from that field. So this is the principle that Paul is discussing, okay? If you're eating, plowing the field, the ox should be able to eat from that field. We're not begging, we're not even asking. You guys are willfully doing this. Now, Paul didn't always accept financial gifts. In fact, in one place, he refused a financial gift in Corinth because he didn't want them to think he was motivated by money. But Paul believed and taught that missionaries should be supported financially by other believers, even though sometimes he had to work to build tents to support himself. So this is the this is what we're talking about here. If you're confused, Paul's getting money from them saying, thank you for your money. You've given more than these other churches. You've helped me so much with this, these financial gifts. Philippians chapter four, verse 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to be abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is what Paul was saying. One second, guys. All right, guys, hang on. There's somebody in my driveway. Stay put, okay? I'll be right back. Everybody hang on. I don't have a be right back screen. There's somebody outside that my wife needs me to go deal with. So hang on, guys. Stay tuned. All right. Somebody was delivering DoorDash to my wife, and they got hit by a car right by my house. And they're, um, they, yeah, it was a hit and run. And the lady's, like, freaking out, crying. And she can't talk. And then they ran over, like, our lights in front of her house. And they're just distraught. So... I had to go take care of that. My wife and my mother-in-law and father-in-law are here now. They're dealing with it. They're going to probably end up calling the cops, and that's fine. We're going to keep rolling, okay, because we're live here. So, yeah, they're just, ugh. Okay, anyways, let's go Let's go through this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish here. Praise the Lord. Father, let's just pray for them really quick. Father, we just pray for this couple outside our house right now, Lord, that you would comfort them, Father. We pray that all anxiety would be removed, All that you would just bring the peace of God, Lord. Right now, you'd bring comfort to them. You would just assure them that everything's going to work out. We bless them right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. She thought, you know, she's worried that she's going to get, she could probably hear me because they're outside, but she's worried she's going to get fired from DoorDash for running over our lights in front of our 
grass because we have like these you know landscape lights she ran over them and so she's just like shaking crying can't really talk so um they'll pray with her and deal with it and probably end up calling the cops because yeah the guy just straight hit her it's pitch black out 720 pitch black but the guy hit her and took off and so i don't know what's going on i don't know if they're, they're intoxicated or what but who knows what's going on my daughter came and said there's people in our driveway walking around we need your help so i kind of panicked there all right where was i here all right philippians 4 14 sorry guys let me get back into this philippians 4 14 through 16 nevertheless you've done all that you've shared in my distress now you philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when i departed from macedonia no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only look at what paul says here i want you guys to notice something that paul says when i departed from macedonia no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only for even in Thessalonica, you sent me aid and once again for my necessities. So when other churches weren't willing to sow and partner with Paul, he was saying, you guys were willing to sow and partner with me. Even while I was in Thessalonica, you guys were still giving and supporting me when I shared the gospel. But then he wants to, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18, contrast it. Look what he says here. Not that I seek the gift. This is finances here. Remember what he's talking about, the gift that they gave him financially. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So Paul wants to make it clear. It's not me going after the money. It's not about the money, but he says it's about the fruit that abounds to your account. And I have all that I abound. I'm full, having received the things that were sent from you. So it's not about money. One commentator said this, Paul suddenly seemed to realize that maybe his comments could be misinterpreted. So he quickly, expla quickly explains he's not interested in getting money from them, but for the blessing they receive from being generous. He believes that their giving will not be forgotten by God and that they will receive a reward in heaven. He doesn't want them to miss out on that. They aren't just giving for an earthly project. They're investing towards an eternal one. So Paul is saying you're giving your finances, but it's not just an earthly blessing you're going to get. It's also a heavenly blessing that's going to happen. And I don't want you to miss out on that. This is what Paul's talking about. And he, he talks about this phrase of a sweet smelling aroma, which is an Old Testament principle. When animal sacrifices were burned, the smell was something that pleased God because the sacrifice represented dedication and obedience. So this is what Paul is saying. All right. Philippians 4, 19 through 20. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, all your needs, you're giving, you're sowing, you're partnering. That's what, Paul, what that we're doing with Paul. Paul says God will supply all your needs. But notice he doesn't say all your wants. God does not always supply our wants, but he goes after our needs. Now, God often does supply our wants and does give us the things that we might want. But that's not the main goal. The main thing that God promises here is that I'm going to supply all your needs according to his riches, according to his riches, not my, my riches, not making me rich, not making me have everything I want, which again, if you obey God and you're obedient and serving God, there are oftentimes God will provide your wants, but that's not the promise. The promise is that God is going to provide needs. Philippians chapter four, verses 21 through 23, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesarea's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And there we are. We are in. We just ended the book of Philippians. Can we get some confetti here? Hold on. Let me get some confetti here in the chat. There we go. Book of Philippians. One more book down. Now we've done I don't book of Revelation, 
book of Ephesians, book of Romans, book of Acts, book of Philippians. Is that it? Five? And we are working our way through. We are done. And now we are going to take communion and then we are going to pray. So if you don't have your communion stuff, and I'll actually keep this recording. So this will be on audio podcast as well. Get your communion. If you're new to communion, yeah, let's get some emojis in the chat. All right. That took us what? Four weeks, three weeks, three weeks to do that. Let's get some emojis. Sorry, guys. I'm a little frazzled from the whole thing that happened. These people are really frantic out here. So I'm just getting back into it here. Okay. So just bear with me here, but let's get um, our communion out. So juice, if you don't have any juice, you could use water and then bread or a cracker. Let me grab mine. I have to grab mine because I know I'll probably knock it over if I put it there. So I just have a little bit of juice and a little cracker. That's probably, don't even probably need all that. We're going to take communion. Maybe it's your first time. Communion, I'll make it very, very simple as a symbolic way to show that we belong to Jesus and we want to remember what he did for us. You know, easy, it is easy in our culture to forget things. Like, I don't even remember what I ate or did yesterday. So this is something where we bring back to remembrance Christ's sacrificial death. We never want to forget what Jesus has done for us on that cross and then raising from the, from the, from the dead. So the breaking and eating of bread has to do with Christ's body being broken on the cross. The drinking from the cup has to do with the shedding of Christ's blood, which brings forgiveness. And communion was originally celebrated by God's people as a promise of his protection during the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Then Jesus redefined the celebration of the Passover in Luke 22, 19. He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so one thing I want to do is before we take this, I want to examine ourselves. And this is found in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And this is what Paul says. A man should examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So we need to examine ourselves. You don't have to live perfect, but we need to do this in a worthy manner. This is not light. This is not a joke. This is not something that we just do on the side. No big deal. This is very important. And we do this in a worthy manner and we honor God. And the reason why Paul said this was they were taking the, the communion and they were eating it like for food and they were overeating. So this is what Paul was saying was, listen, they're abusing it. They're doing it in a selfish manner. Don't do it in a selfish manner. Don't do it the way that they're doing it, but do it in a godly way. So the, there was people hungry outside the church and they were overeating during communion. That's, that's what Paul was talking about, abusing it. So right now, let's examine ourselves. Father, right now, we just repent of any sin in our life. Lord, we ask you for forgiveness and we just examine ourselves tonight in Jesus' name. Lord, that we would do this properly. We would do this in order. We pray that you would search our heart and find if there's anything in us that offends you. If there's anything in us that offends you, we just pray, Lord, right now that you would cleanse us of it, that you would wash us of it, and that you would purify us right now in Jesus' name. Let us do this in a worthy manner. We examine ourselves. We repent of any sin. We thank you, Lord. I like to thank him first too for what you did on the cross. We honor you, Jesus. We remember what you did on the cross. It's powerful. It's real. It changed our life. It changes our life. And Lord, we just thank you right now. Okay, so now everybody get their bread and I'll tell you when to eat it. Don't eat it yet. Get your bread out, a cracker or whatever you have. I want to read you 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead now, you guys can eat your bread. And that represents the body of Christ being broken for us. Thank you, Lord. Now we're going to get our, our, our juice or our drink out. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So you can go ahead now and drink whatever you have. This is the, represents the blood of Jesus. And then I want to read you 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.